0: This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas... They are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom, it has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or a 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think are amazing, um, go to 5.11 Tactical, put in Shield 15 and save 15% every single time. Welcome guys to episode 305 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome Crawford Coates. Now, Crawford, although he's not a first responder himself, has been attached to our profession for a long, long time, primarily working with publications, whether it's journals or books, but also bringing his own book now, Mindful Responder, to our community teaching mindfulness, the practice of meditation and other forms of meditation to help deregulate the nervous system after the high-stress environment that we work in and also to build resilience. And I think this is extremely pertinent at the moment coming out of this pandemic that we're seeing where I think mental wellness and mental toughness have been tested a little bit. So before we go to that interview, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback i really do love reading the feedback and then leave a rating the five star ratings really do make us more visible as we climb the virtual charts for people looking for a podcast like this and as i've mentioned many times this is a free library for you the audience so all that i ask is that you share whichever episode that resonates with you because every single one of these men and women's stories i know will change lives if they reach the right people so with that being said i introduce to you crawford Coates. enjoy i want to say thank you so much a for your patience uh and b for taking the time to come on today
1: thank you it's 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 truly an honor and it's something i've been waiting to do for a long time as you know
0: yes we had such an interesting kind of interaction where we talk intensely for a while and then not for a while and we talk about doing the podcast and then not so i'm so glad that we're actually getting it done yeah me too all right where on planet earth are we finding you today
1: I'm in Ventura, California, which is about 72 miles northwest of Los Angeles on the coast.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, I'd like to start at the very beginning, like I do with, with all the guests chronologically. So where were you born, and then what was your family dynamic like?
1: Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I was born in San Diego, California. Um, my uh, my parents divorced when I was pretty young, and um, I grew up primarily with my mother, And I have a brother and uh, my mom was a school teacher and uh, it was a it was a really good, really good upbringing.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, then speaking of your mom teaching, um, I am hoping to get one of the uh, experts on the Finnish education system on here, because every time we do any sort of poll, Finland is the one that's supposed to have the best one. The research I've done so far is basically it's a lot more play based, which then encourages them to be much better students. What have you ever spoken to your mom about the evolution of schools and and kind of her perspective on that?
1: That's funny that you say that. Yeah, actually. Um, And, and, you know, my mom was, you know, she struggled to to make ends meet. And um, but she was really critical of the teachers unions and some of the effects that they had on on her ability to teach. Um, which is interesting because she was also a proud union member. Um, I'm sure you can relate as a firefighter to that sentiment. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, and it's controversial to say. I don't even know if she would like me saying it in public, but I do know that um, you know she she always worked in the toughest schools too. I mean, she was not at uh, was not teaching in the suburbs. She was teaching in, in in really rough schools, and I know that because during the summer she would sneak me into her kindergarten classroom when i was that age and um and teaching under those conditions is a real challenge
0: yeah absolutely when you say with the union so I've, I've been a proud union member of my whole career as a fireman but i've been sadly disappointed in some areas that like when we talk about for example the work week you know there's it's a completely there's a spectrum of work weeks out there, you know, that we're seeing are very, very harmful, the, the higher ones and um, the, you know, the unions that that get in the way of fitness standards that, you know, get in the way of tr- realism and training. So yeah, it, it is a very, is a huge dichotomy where you believe in the philosophy of the union, but the actuation of some unions can be very different than, than what you perceived it to be. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, you, you, you got into your line of work, whatever it may be, with a, an idea of mission involved, um, and then there's all this other stuff that comes with the job, whether you're a teacher or a nurse or a cop or a firefighter, and um, the unions can serve the mission, and they can also sometimes hinder the mission a little bit.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, I thing that really when you look at it, what it boils down to is that the people on those boards truly serving the members or are they self-serving and then what i've witnessed personally is that when there's self-serving involved normally it's at the uh, the detriment of the people that's supposed to be serving
1: yeah yeah and you know it is changing i just talked to somebody the um the department of public safety in texas is really bucking the trend they're making um and maybe we should leave this out uh, if <laughs> the live uh, conversation but uh they're they're having um waist size limits on for dps officers oh really yeah and they're they're backing it up in court they're they're definitely going to court over these these things but um they say that it's it's scientifically based so you know and there are unions that do things like provide gyms and advocate for more sane sleep structure um and then there are ones that don't so it it really depends on where you are
0: yeah, and I think that's it. Is is that there, there needs to be a standard, I in my opinion, period. However, if it's only expected of the individual and there's no support from the administration, they you know they're overworking them, they're mandatory overtime. There's like you said, there's no gyms, no access to to facilities. Then that's very different than giving. A police officer, a firefighter, all the the means to be healthy and them still refusing to. So yeah, I mean I'm I'm all about just finding that middle ground. I mean it's not gonna, you know, it's not it's not uh complex math, but right. it has to be both sides putting in work to get to that middle ground.
1: Right, right. Instead of, you know, trying to protect people who maybe are on the job for a long time and maybe out of in out of shape. And um, you know, it's not about punishing people, it's about giving people tools to <clears throat> um, live their best life
0: yeah exactly I mean that's the thing with with being fit for duty is there's a huge wellness component where you actually get to retire and enjoy your grandchildren so that'd be nice <laughs> yeah but again that's ownership of the individual but it's also the administration and sadly you know there there's many administrations that have just beaten their people down and there's also responders who have been allowed to slip through the cracks that shouldn't be there as well so it's, uh, like I said, middle ground.
1: Well, and also, you know, and, and I know that you touch on this a lot. There's just a culture that needs to change in some places. Um, I have a cousin who's a firefighter back east. I won't say where. But he's very proud of his 24-hour shifts. And um, when he's done, he goes and works a security job to make ends meet. And then he goes right back to work afterward. Yeah. And, um, and, and I mean, proud of it. Just absolutely proud that, you know, here's a 45-year-old guy who routinely goes twenty-four or forty-eight hours without any real rest.
0: Yeah. And then it's the same as uh, you know, mental health before, you know, where they just, you know, men don't cry. It's it's a fallacy. And I think the more people are educated on the true short-term and long-term effects of living like that, the more people will realize, okay, I'm making myself a much worse police officer, firefighter, medic by doing this, and I'm far more likely to drop dead. You know, within five years of retiring, so it's not a it's not about bravado. I think it's mis you know miseducation. And I think that that's the job of this podcast and your book and so many other people out there trying to reframe this whole wellness side to make people realize this is how you thrive and become the best version of yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of miserable cops and firefighters out there. And, um, and that's exactly what you and I are trying to get away from is, you know, if we want you to, we want people to live a, a good life, a happy life when we're not, you know, you're not driving around cursing at everybody who doesn't use their turn signal or yelling at your kids at the, at the drop of a hat.
0: Yes. Yeah. The first one I was very guilty of when I was sleep deprived. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have you got no fucking upper body strength to turn, you know, use the turn signal for Christ's sake. <laughs> have- hey. Have- to all of us i'm sure yes yes well and I, just with that thing as well it drives me crazy because it's a complete again lack of lack of compassion and, and and kindness to anyone else on the road that you are that selfish that you can't push down with what two pounds of pressure to let everyone around you know that you're about to slam on your brakes and turn into a road so you know if it's it,
1: true it's true and when you look at it that way it makes sense and that's how i look at it too but at the same time you realize that life is full of people who are who are suffering and ignorant and making poor decisions. And um, it's really easy to get very angry about that. And at the same time, you know, when you're, I'm sure that when people are laying on their deathbeds, they aren't going, you know what I should have done more of? I should have been more pissed off at people who don't recycle or whatever the, the issue is, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly.
0: Right. Well, you, again, staying with your mother for a second, so you you raised with her. Had she ever been exposed to meditation, mindful practice, yoga, anything like that?
1: Not at all. Um, and, uh, no, she, my mom was a really interesting person. She, she grew up Catholic, um, went to a Catholic college and then she volunteered to go to Vietnam, um, when she was, gosh, early twenties, like 21, maybe, um, And she came back and she was not religious at all. We kind of grew up with an absence of religion in the household. My dad, who was around, by the way, I mean, he's and he was also kind of an interesting guy, but he's always been sort of a uh, Unitarian type, but again, not the type to show up at the Unitarian church. Um, So, no, nothing like that in my background at all. In fact, I had um, a neighbor who meditated and I just thought she was a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Like that, that was really my exposure to meditation was it's something that strange people do.
0: Right. And what did your mom do in Vietnam?
1: She worked for the USO. So, um, she had a boyfriend who went over there who got, uh, who was drafted and, uh, and I don't have all the details. Correct. Um, I'm sure if she listens, she will correct me, but, um, he died almost immediately, uh, while he was there and she stuck around. Um, so they would do things like, um, provide entertainment for troops, um, just kind of helping out um she was in Da Nang. um she loved it i mean she she uh she went back she she adored vietnam and the vietnamese people um but i have to believe it was a uh a difficult place to be also
0: oh i'm sure absolutely yeah it's, it's interesting i never never heard of of that you know particular story out there i mean normally we just hear of the the young men that were sent out there but well, and here's another funny one. My dad volunteered
1: to go to Vietnam, and he got sent instead to Alaska. Really? Yeah, because I guess, I guess they were afraid that the Soviets might invade <laughs> from Russia to Alaska. So he was 200 miles outside of Nome, Alaska for years, where wow. he was the chief of police, the fire chief. He was in charge of an airstrip, and uh, that's what he did during the Vietnam War.
0: Oh, wow. So, that's that's an interesting part. I'm glad that we, we found our way to your dad's story. Cause so, so, he was in the first responder professions then?
1: Yeah. But, I mean, it was just by necessity. It was, he was out, it was, you know, this was like, you know, you can imagine the early 1970s out in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. And uh, he was an engineer, I think was his title, um, a captain with the Air Force.
0: Wow. That would have been a good time to strike, too, because so many of our men were over in Vietnam.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I, 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 again, I don't want to tell a story I don't know very well, but I believe my dad was sent there by a commanding officer who didn't want him to die in Vietnam. Wow. Like it was a an, an act of sort of um, mercy on, on his commanding officer's part to send him there. Yeah.
0: God. Awful. Yeah. I know I've been watching the Ken Burns show on Vietnam and, uh, you know, I mean, World War Two. there's no question, you know, we had to be there. But I mean. The, the loss of life in, in Vietnam, just, uh, you know, I mean, there was still atrocities going on. So it's kind of a hard one to, to juggle, but certainly those poor guys when they came back were treated like shit for what they did.
1: Oh yeah. And, and it, yeah, I had a lot of family that went to Vietnam and uh, it reverberates through the generations. And I think we're seeing some of that today with Afghanistan and, and Iraq and, um, you know, I think a lot of these opioid overdoses and stuff, I'm not saying you could pin one to the other, but a lot of our veterans come back and they're just not getting the support that they need.
0: Yeah. Another thing that keeps kind of coming across my radar, and I've asked even a few of the soldiers in in uh, conversations if I've known that they've been around it, is the opium fields in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and, and that they're not being destroyed for some mm-hmm. reason. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely some sinister you know, goings on in some respect due to, you know, the the opium itself in Afghanistan, which is very, uh, very weird. I'd love to find out the real reason one day.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a narco state, basically, at this point. And, um And that's how they fund, that's how the Taliban makes money. So, you know, and we're negotiating with the Taliban now. So not to get too political, but yeah, that's that's exactly what they're
0: doing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well then kind of moving back to your childhood, one one thing I always like to ask as well, were you an athlete when you were young?
1: Gosh, that's a, that's a tough question because I, uh, I, I wasn't, I, I gotta say, I mean, I played soccer. I was pretty good at soccer. Um, okay. I did play some, I played volleyball in high school. I love, you know, playing basketball and stuff. Um, I think that the value of athletics kind of dawned on me later in life and, um, I now play soccer any chance I get. I surf a lot. I love boxing. Um, so, as a kid, I wasn't the most athletic kid, um, and I didn't really appreciate it the way that I, I do now.
0: So you play soccer now? You said.
1: I do. Yep.
0: Yeah. See, that's an interesting parallel. Back home, when we leave school, usually guys will get into local leagues, and they'll play, you know, well into their forties, fifties. And I've always made this observation and it's probably changing now, finally. But when I first moved to the States, you had all these broken 18 year olds or, you know, even older that were just destroyed playing baseball or or football in school. And it just kind of fell off. If they didn't go to college, then that was kind of it. Then they just go to the globo gym and, and work out. But, um, that's very cool. You know, I think that we're seeing that more and more now. And I think soccer, football is a, is a great game that you can keep playing you know well into your you know 50s
1: absolutely i mean i was playing with a british guy this weekend who was i mean a stunning player by the way but i'm guessing he was in his 40s um and the, the sorts of friendships you make um and, it, and it's you know it's both physical i'm still sore on tuesday morning from playing <laughs> an hour and a half of soccer on sunday yeah um, but i mean so it's it, it those wind sprints really are a wonderful workout but um you get to think there's a lot of strategy um there's just so much camaraderie there's there's that friendly competition that comes about kind of like in a fire crew you know when you have a healthy culture um you're not you're competitive for all the right reasons
0: yeah no, exactly yeah another thing you see all the theatrics in the 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 world stage and the national stage but real football they're not diving around and holding their you know they're just <laughs> they get knocked down they stand up you know again this is a blatant foul so it's a very dynamic game it hardly ever stops and that's what i like about it I, I watched uh a gator game here i'm a i'm a grad from there and took my little boy and and he was like daddy why do they keep stopping i'm like because there's 10 minutes of commercials between each freaking play <laughs> so it was so annoying to watch but uh, ice hockey and, and soccer, uh, even basketball, I mean, the, I like those sports that just keep moving.
1: Yeah, and it's so much better than football. I mean, I'm sorry to any of your listeners who are big football fans, but I've had too many friends who played that sport, as you said, in high school or in college, and then their knees are shot for the rest of their life, or, or worse, you know, you get concussed to the point that you're forgetting things um, in your 30s and 40s.
0: Yeah yeah and even now there's a a a fireman i was interviewed in la a little while ago um and he's got als and there's there's a big connection between that and contact sports so you you know it's not just the you know the uh, concussion protocol but even some of these degenerative diseases that are you know killing young men
1: yep yeah and soccer hopefully you know i don't i don't header the ball too much so uh because I I need all the brain cells I got left.
0: Yeah. Well, the same with you said about boxing as well. I mean, that's the thing. I'm, with but the uh, the striking arts. I realized that some of my heavy sparring from back in the day was giving me you know perpetual headaches. I'm like, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. So yeah. Like, now when I spar, I tell whoever I'm with, I'm like, let's just go light, all right? You can yep. you can go kill someone else after this.
1: <laughs> yeah, I box every week, and um, I do spar a few rounds usually. You know, with the with the coach but it's always with the understanding that we're wearing headgear and mouthpieces and, uh, and it's just, it's, it it's friendly, you know, we're not trying to hurt anybody.
0: Yeah. No, I was like 50%. That was a good kind of benchmark. You can feel the punch, but you're not going to get rocked.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it doesn't take much to, uh, to, to screw your, your brain up. I got concussed once surfing and it wasn't even a big day, really kind of a small day. And, um, I, I didn't think anything of it. I I fell off my surfboard. I hit a sandbar that was really shallow on my ear. And, um, it was scary what happened really quickly. I immediately fell asleep in the car, um, threw up repeatedly, um, in the middle of the night while trying to sleep, went into the emergency room. And, um, and they were like, yeah, you have a concussion. And I felt like I was, um, I felt sleepy and just terrible for like a week, and there's nothing really to do about it
0: no, that's the thing yeah I mean the the concussion on its own they say isn't isn't that bad. it's when you get multiple over and over and over again, like you do in these sports that it adds up, and now you you start getting much worse problems, yep, yeah, no it was scary. It was a real wake up call for me, yeah, I knocked myself out pretty much uh on a on a ski, a water ski, just cutting hard across the wake and you know. Took a tumble and I had the life jacket on, but I was like, everything was ringing and spinning. And I was like, God, it's like I've been freaking had my bell rung. It was crazy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's no, it is scary. I, I felt like I, I really felt just terrible, like, like I've never felt before. And I had no idea why. I just, it, it took going to the emergency room and being diagnosed that, um, yeah, you have a severe concussion.
0: All right. Well, then, um, What about when you were in the high school age as far as career aspirations?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, I didn't have much in terms of career aspirations, and I'm not sure why that is. I just wasn't one of those people who knew exactly what he was going to be when he grew up. And um, again, I'm not sure why that is, but um, I think I still have it to some extent in the sense that, um, you know, I'm not like like you, for example. You knew you wanted to be a firefighter. Um, I just... I I enjoyed, um, I've always liked writing. I've always liked reading. Um, And I just, I don't know, you know, I didn't have much,
0: uh, to be honest with you. Right. So then what led you into uh, fire rescue magazines?
1: That's fun. Yeah. So basically, I, my father worked in construction and um, I worked with him and for him in the summers and um, in after school and stuff. And I graduated from college. I actually did, you know, I, I did pretty well in college. Um but when I was done, I graduated into the post September 11th um economy right after the dot com burst um or bubble burst and there there just weren't a lot of jobs to be had and I I went back into construction, remodeling houses and swinging a hammer and um I know this is kind of a long roundabout story, but I really really liked it actually. Um, I liked working outside. I like being able to talk with people. You meet such characters on a, on a construction crew. Um, you, it it was a really nice time in my life, but I knew that long-term it wasn't going to work for me. Um, it's very cyclical. Uh, and when you don't have a job, you don't have a job and it makes life very unpredictable when you don't have a job. So, um, I, uh, basically I, I put in an application to a publishing company and, um, Took the uh, just a, a very entry level position with a company called Elsevier, and I ended up working on a a journal called Brain Research, which is um, kind of it all kind of comes full circle because that's where I first got introduced with the idea of meditation from a scientific perspective. Um, there was a title that we published called Cognitive Brain Research, that was doing some really interesting work on meditation. And um, that really is what piqued my interest. Then within that company, I, uh, I, I jumped ship and I started working in our public safety division. Are you familiar with GEMS?
0: Yeah, so here's what's funny. When I was going through fire school, I needed a nine-to-five job to pay the bills, so I worked for Elsevier in Orlando.
1: That's funny. What? Thank God for Elsevier, huh? Yes. <laughs> they paid our bills for a little while.
0: Yeah. So, so, yeah, actually, I think because I worked there, I got free fire rescue in GEMS during my my tenure there if I remember rightly
1: that's amazing yeah well while I was working there while I was um, one of my best friends uh, Dan Finn became what was working on becoming a firefighter in San Diego so that kind of made it real for me you know seeing working on a magazine but also seeing um, somebody going through the steps of becoming an EMT becoming a paramedic getting their first job at a fire station in San Diego um, I, I ended up having a lot of friends in the fire service as a result of that and really kind of um, coming to appreciate fire culture.
0: Okay, so you so you had these friends that you knew in the fire service, and you mentioned GEMS. So did you end up beginning to work with GEMS?
1: So, yeah, so I worked
0: – so GEMS was
1: the name of the company when I first started working there. It became Elsevier Public Safety. Um, but we published uh, a wildland firefighting journal, fire rescue – uh, gems and a uh, law enforcement title called law officer. And um, one of the things that was really neat about gems is that it was founded by a guy named James page. And Jim page was kind of a lion in the fire service. He was sort of, uh, he was a fire chief in Carlsbad and he ended up um, he, he's the guy who published gems and he was very much about service. He was about improving um, fire culture. Um, he was, are you familiar with James Page or Jim Page?
0: Yeah, he passed away a few years ago, didn't he?
1: It was a while. It was before I worked there, but his legacy really lived on. And our publisher, a guy named Jeffrey Barrand, um, really he was he worked with Jim really closely, and um, you could you could just feel you could feel his uh, the the influence that he had over everything that we did editorially.
0: So, what point did you find yourself in the mindfulness space?
1: Well. How I got into mindfulness really was—it was not a—it was definitely not a linear path. <laughs> it was a, as I said, I, uh, for me, meditation was always something that weird, weird people did. I was very skeptical um, when I got introduced to it while working at Brain Research. Though, it it lent it a, a, I guess, a little bit of credibility, a, a sort of a respectability. When I saw, hey, look, these cognitive neuroscientists are actually mapping changes in the brain. Um, this stuff really could work. Um, and I, I also sensed in myself that I wasn't living my best life. Um, that And this is about the time that my first child was born, um, which, I don't know, for, for me was a very, uh, you know, it was a, very much a transitional time. And um, I, I took an interest in meditation long before i began meditating and when i did finally learn to meditate it was um in the zen tradition at the san diego zen center and then at a few other zen centers where i actually did some of the training and started sitting with groups and um and then and then began a home practice pretty much immediately that i've i've kept up you know i'm not i'm not the best i'm not the most reliable meditator out there i think um you know there are days where it's really really tough for me Um, and there are days where I love it and it, and it, it comes more easily, but I think that really is what the practice teaches you over time. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah. Now, now what were your personal, um, discoveries though? Like what, what did you find improved in your life specifically? It's really hard to answer that question because I think
1: the longer you do it, the more you realize that you don't know what you're doing. And that's kind of the point. If that makes sense. Yes, it is. It's a, it's really a process of self-discovery and anytime I've ever thought that I had it figured out or that there was an insight that was easy and I could just tell you, you know, that here's the insight that I learned. It's, it's not an experience like that because it it is, it is an experience. It's not a, an intellectual, um, exercise.
0: Yeah. End goal.
1: Yeah. And there is no end goal except to just be here, to be present with yourself And it's very much a physical thing, too. So your question about athletics is really interesting. Um, I think my my joy in playing soccer or my joy in surfing or my joy in boxing has been so enhanced by being better at being in my body rather than stuck in my head all the time.
0: Yeah. Well, this, so we'll touch on that. We're going to talk about the, the book in a moment, but one of the chapters of the book, you talk about mindful fitness. So that, that appears to be what you're kind of elaborating on now. So what was the, uh, the, the difference that you found being in the moment in the, the sports that you'd done prior to, to mindfulness?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's a lot of different things, but I'm sure as, as a British guy who played, you played soccer and I'm sure you got really frustrated sometimes with either how you were playing or how your team was playing, right? Usually myself. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, and that, that does happen. And I think one of the things that I learned pretty quickly is that getting, getting angry and become, it makes you actually more self-conscious, um, rather than self-aware and, there's also a sense that, I mean, this is all pretty basic stuff, but if you miss a shot or if you miss a pass or whatever it may be, um, you can be mad at yourself or you can just accept it and proceed and just try and do it better next time. Maybe try and learn a little bit better about, you know, I think really, and I I never really uh, appreciated the degree to which um, professional athletes work at their crafts, but there's so much work that goes into being... A LeBron James or, you know, a, any, any high level athlete like that. They're, they're working repeatedly. And I think that self-awareness and knowing that when you're shooting a basketball, if your your thumb is just so you might get a little bit of a, a, a better angle or something like that. That sort of checking in with yourself. But but in a kind way is really helpful in sport.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's the same, you know, on the fire ground as well. Um, I think that's one of the underlying things about resistance to training is the fear of screwing up and therefore looking stupid in front of your friends. And the reality is like with most fear, it, it's usually unfounded, but the fire ground is the place to make mistakes. You know, the, the, the fire ground, excuse me, the training ground is the place to make mistakes. The fire ground is organized chaos. You're not going to control everything. So you just have to try and control as much as you can. But if you're just present in training and you do something and cause, and even if you don't make mistake, the whole point of training is to find out how to do it even better. So let's say you completely screw it up in that evolution. It's not your strength. Um, then you, bring yourself up to par if you already have it down pat and then maybe you find a better way of doing it but um if you're always in you know in the future basically in that state of anxiety then you're going to go onto that training already shit in your pants which is then clearly gonna you know hold you back as far as performance
1: absolutely and also you're going to get a better sense of yourself so that if you're if you're on the fire ground if you're training let's say And you're in your head, you're, you're going over an argument that you had with your spouse or you're in your head, you're going over, um, you know, your, your financial insecurity and what are you going to do, which these are scary situations. These are very highly emotional situations, but you, you get a, I think as we mature as well, you get a sense that that's just not important in this moment where you're training because you are going to perform, you're going to revert to your training under pressure. And what matters is training really, really well.
0: Yeah, and I've had a few people on here that have uh, talked about their own experiences or from a coaching side as far as getting into flow. And uh, I think it was, was it Chris Hinshaw? Uh, I forget who it was now, but one of, the, one of my guests was, was saying that one of the elements that you need is stress. Now, obviously, that's a, a you know prerequisite that's always going to be there for us on any decent call. But then the other side is obviously being present, having that... that, that um, lack of of being in the past or in the future but actually being in that moment and that's when and obviously the skill as well um that's when you get that flow state and and i've found that's very very true when we're when everyone in the crew is just in that moment they've done the training already obviously that that's a big precursor as well but they're not distracted by anything they're not running around like a chicken head you know with his head cut off that is when you see that flow state performance in a code in a in a fire in an extrication Um, so ignoring that one mental component is going to take you away from performing your best, you know, under these high, high stress environments that we're put in.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, to your point about stress, you know, there's some stress is really good for you. Um, too much of it is really bad. It's like a lot of things, a little bit is good, but a lot is bad. And, um, I, I can tell you this, when I got into meditation, it was directly as a result of me not handling stress well in my life and knowing that, you know, being I'm I'm grateful that I had the self-awareness as well the, as the exposure to these concepts so that I was able to to learn from them.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about stress for a moment. So so describe the difference between distress and eustress and, and how one can be of benefit and one can be detrimental.
1: Well, you know, I, I think. and and I'm not, I'm I'm definitely not the expert on this topic, but we know, we know when we're feeling bad stress, right? Um, It it takes us out of the element. It takes us away from, from what matters in our lives. Um, And, um, and we've all felt it, you know, especially in in first response. um, I think it's, it's, I I almost think trauma is universal among first responders. Um, And that's bad stress. That's the kind of stress where, you know, it, it's, it's deep in your body. It takes you out of your presence. It takes you out of where you are in the moment. Um, but a little bit of stress is so good for you. I mean, it's, there's a lot of studies looking at things like fasting. And fasting is stress on your body, but it's the right kind of stress. Um, you know, we've, we've evolved to seek homeostasis and seek comfort and be, be lazy, Let's, you know, to be honest. And laziness makes you miserable. And I, I can tell you that from firsthand experience.
0: Yeah. Well and and you see uh, people like Wim Hof, for example, who, you know, are imposing environmental stresses on the body in um, the same way as you would in, in an exercise. You know, you, you have that stress and then you have that, that recuperation, that meditation phase or that sleep or whatever it is, restorative phase. And I think that's something that we are suffering from now as people aren't out their comfort zone anymore. It doesn't mean you have to walk naked up a, a glacier or anything, but you know you've got it. You've got to stress the body in order to grow, and, and and sadly, you get this atrophy if you just don't do anything that challenges you.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. And, and it and it it's it's both physical and emotional. And you know, as, a, as an adult, I, I know a lot of people. It's sort of you know our culture tells you that. You know, you should be watching television and eating pizza and sitting on a on a sofa and in, in an air conditioned room, and um, that may be the worst thing in the world for a person. and And it it is tough to get out of your comfort zone and grow as a person, become a, a person whose life is a story rather than a, just a, a destination. You know, and and that that sounds corny, and it is corny, but um, I I've, I found for myself that the more the more ch- i challenge myself ultimately the happier i am in the long longer term and up to a point of course i mean we we've all also bitten off more than we can chew at times and that's no
0: good yeah Right. Well, you so you decided to write the book Mindful Responder. So I know we touched on a couple of topics from a couple of the chapters. But so what made you go from, you know, working in the the first responder magazine environment to actually writing a book, but applying the mindfulness element to our professions?
1: Well, first of all, let me say that I never thought that I would write the book. (laughs) Never in a million years. In fact, I was working with somebody else to write the book. Um, And it just kind of fell through. I had pages and pages of notes that I had taken. Um, And I think, you know, and and, and basically I I was working for an outfit called Caliber Press and our owner, Jim Glennon, said, uh, why don't you just write it? And I thought, okay, you know, that's and that's really how it came about. But um, the reason that I if I couldn't have written it six years ago, I just don't think there was space to have these kinds of conversations among first responders. I think a lot has been changing culturally. Um, I've seen it. You know, there's a lot of, I think, suic- the suicidality, um, the, uh, the, the recognition of PTSD. Um, these things have been wake up calls. And I think a lot of people are people like you are, are looking around going like, how do we how do we make ourselves more resilient? What do we do? And I started having conversations with cops about meditation, particularly cops who are into martial arts that seem to always be the sort of the through line. But they were really interested To 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 a degree that really shocked me, you know, I never thought that talking to a cop about what it's like in a Zen dojo would be a welcome and easy conversation to have. And in fact, I was surprised a lot of these uh, guys and gals um, are far more interested, far more open to these topics. than I realized, and having these conversations made me realize that, Hey, this, there may be something there. And the fact was, James, at the time, there was nothing else out there. I mean, there were, there were people teaching mindfulness and meditation to first responders, but there wasn't a book. And uh, and so I decided to do it.
0: Yeah, and that's brilliant. I know some of the people that you have worked with, Greg Armisen I've had on the show and Mark Devine, both um, have a very, very strong mental practice and they're extremely high performers. So there's, there's no doubt there's a correlation there from their mindful practice.
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, nowadays... I kind of touched upon this in the book, but even just sports psychology, that wasn't really much of a thing in the United States until the 1980s. Um, It really kind of took off at that point. And nowadays it's, it's every, every top, you know, the Seattle Seahawks have a mindfulness coach. The, uh, the Lakers do too. Um, George Mumford has taught just about every top basketball player from, you know, Kobe Bryant, rest in peace to Shaq, to um you know michael jordan adam was his coach um and there's a realization in sports that this is absolutely necessary um so i, I think i kind of lost my train of thought there but uh hopefully you can make me sound good
0: yeah no 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 you didn't at all um i had uh michael gervais on who's who's a psychologist with with um performers and, and i know he has a mindfulness practice attached to you know to how he works with them and i had uh a guy, Nick Littlehales, who's a British sleep coach who actually is assigned just to that. So that's that's what's always so funny is there's so much pushback on taking care of our first responders, yet no one bats an eye at what our athletes demand to perform properly, you know. So um, it is a hard sell. And I think that, you know, uh, a lot of people see meditation as, as woo-woo. But then when you look at these high performers that you admire, they all do it in some way shape or form it may not be sitting on a cushion in the lotus position it might be sailing or riding a horse or you know but there's an area where they are being present absolutely yeah you know and you you probably can speak to this
1: but i was talking to a a chief of police in the midwest and um i said you know hey chief does your do you know if anybody in your department meditates and she goes meditates she goes people in my department don't realize that sleep is good for you she goes, when you're talking about wellness, Crawford, you have to realize that like we don't know how to eat right and we don't know how to sleep. And, you know, obviously that's one one department's experience and one one person's opinion. But culturally, there has been for a long time an emphasis in first response to get by on as little sleep as possible and just eat whatever is convenient in the moment so you can jam on to the next call. Without without seeing the downside of that.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I think that you said that I think the the perception of resilience before was fortitude to deal with the job, period. You know, and now I think people are realizing that resilience is you have to have rest and recovery, therefore that forges resilience. The same way as if you just sat in the YMCA and lifted weights for 24 hours straight, eventually something would snap. There's gotta be a rest period in between your workouts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know. First response, kind of going back to talking about developing as a person, um, a lot of people become a a police officer and that's the only they won't promote for their whole entire, you know, 25, 30 year career or, you know, as a as a firefighter. The job can be pretty repetitive. Um, And I mean, repetitive within and at the same time, it's it's not it's it's the uh, the craziest show in the world. But I think it's really important if you wanna retire healthy to have some kind of, whatever it may be, some kind of coping mechanism so that you can come back to yourself at the end of your shift and know that you are whole, that you are okay as a person. And that's that's really the lesson of meditation in a nutshell is understanding that most of us, most of the time, have everything we need to right here.
0: Yeah, well, you talk a lot about um... Being present, and I think that that's a, a a very under underutilized philosophy is gratitude. You know, and I, I was talking to my little boy recently, who's been going through some ups and downs, and I told him, anytime you're starting to feel down, just look around and and think about what you're happy for, because I don't think I think uh, gratitude is the enemy of depression. I think it's impossible to be depressed. When you're truly in a state of gratitude, what what has been your observation of that particular um, element gratitude itself?
1: Well, I think so many. I mean, I agree with you so much, and and I've had the same conversation with both of my children. Um, I think a lot of this stuff it's just people are using different words to talk about the same thing. In you know, in the Zen tradition, they don't talk too much about gratitude per se, but at the same time, it's implicit in all that you do. That realizing that the moment is continually unfurling around you that the, the idea that you've been there and done that is bullshit. And that there is always something novel, something happening that the world is in a constant state of, of change and in flux. And I think when you start to really get that again, not on an intellectual level, but when it really sinks into your gut and, and it's hard to maintain, it's really hard to maintain that sense of awe and wonder. But if you can just remind yourself once in a while, that you know you're this is this is the life that you got and it's amazing um you can turn you can turn uh depression around pretty quickly at least i can in myself
0: yeah and that's what i found with a lot of these incredible men and women i've had on here and it may may not have been in their darkest times but at some point that gratitude piece was was huge in turning their life around when they you know whether it's being a, a a boy soldier in sierra leone or being you know horrendously burned or whatever it was like that that gratitude in those particular individuals literally carried them out of that dark place and if they could find you know gratitude in the fact that their family was still doing well the fact they could still take a breath whatever it was they could still see they could still hear um that's what they hung on to and and they ended up being some of the most incredibly positive human beings i've ever met and yet you know if you forget that philosophy now you're bitching because your iphone 10's got a crack in the screen (laughs) you know so it really does it does reframe you know the the truly important things in life and makes the other stuff seem trivial and like you said then then you're not getting angry about people using that blinker even though you you know that is a selfish act you you're you're far more present with what actually matters
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, just just to live in a world where or in a country where you can turn on a faucet and water comes out that you can actually drink, too. I mean, that's it's pretty amazing. And I think a lot of us have forgotten just just how fortunate we are.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, speaking of, of mindful practice, so we, we've kind of skirted around the actual topic but we haven't mentioned really about how people get into it. So I had, um, Andy Puddecombe on the show. Headspace was definitely that. And then Rodney Yee's yoga DVDs were the two ones that really got me into, into that space. Um, what are your suggestions for people that kind of understand the concept now, but they're like, well, well, yeah, how do I start?
1: Yeah. And that's a, that's a hard one. You know, I, I, my metaphor for teaching meditation with a book is it's kind of like teaching somebody to swim with a book. Like you can you can you can read about swimming uh, you know you can read this book every day, and if someone drops you off in the middle of the Pacific in a, from a helicopter, it's going to be really hard to apply those practices to the water but um, but that's a little bit of a stretch as a metaphor too. I think if somebody's interested in meditation, um, obviously they should buy my book first off and uh, and leave a positive review on Amazon while they're at it. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, there are lots of really good resources out there. Um, Headspace is one that you introduced me to that I'm really glad that you did. Um, and as you said, for some people, getting, going sailing can be something that's very, very relaxing for them. Um, I think the first thing to do is just understand and accept that, um, that you do need time to decompress. You do need time to um, sort of recollect your many pieces at the end of the day and become whole with yourself. And that's really what a meditation practice is. In my own, in the tradition that, that I follow, Zen, it has a, a very particular way of meditating. I've tried other ways. I, I, I prefer what's called Zazen, which is basic, just simple awareness of being. Um, I sit on a cushion. I, I make time for it every time that I can. Um, I don't always get up at, in the dark when my alarm goes off like I should, but I do most of the time. And I think really it's the average over time that matters. What I've, what I've heard from a lot of first responders, though, is, well, I just can't sit still. Or my mind just races. It goes, you know, my, my mind runs riot. I can tell you that was exactly how I was when I first started. I thought it was impossible. I thought I was a lost cause. Um, it took time. It took commitment. Um, but as I said, I I began to Quote reap benefits from it um, pretty quickly. The the first five minutes of sitting, though, it was it was torture for me. I mean, my mind was crazy, <laughs> out of control. And I think um, it's really helpful to learn to sit quietly with yourself. It's a skill, and it's one that's going to pay dividends down the line.
0: Well, I think one one of the things that I've heard. Several people talk about Andy does, and I think Rodney even in his as well. Is people think if their mind wanders that they've ruined it? Oh, well, I'm I'm just shit at meditating, and what they always say is like if your mind wanders, that's okay. Just just you know acknowledge that, and then and then pull it back. And and just like you said, it like with the swimming thing, if you are dropped in the Pacific and you worry about having to make it to the to the shore you're going to drown. But if you dropped in the Pacific and they say, just take you know, kick your legs for for a minute and then I'm going to throw you a a buoy, then you know what I mean? It's a thing. So it seems way more, there is no, like you said, end goal. It's just, this is day one. And, and that's why I liked, I like the the guided meditation, especially as a entry to it, because with Andy, I do it lying down because it, for me, I like the restorative thing. That's, that's what I used to do is try and unwind at the station. Um, and, yeah, I mean, before I knew it, I, you know, I'd either drifted off mentally or even fallen asleep sometimes. Um, and and my mind started – there was just less white noise. Like, Boyne you know, Dyer talks about you have the same, you know, thousand, thousand or a hundred thoughts a thousand times a day or something crazy like that. So, you know, when you start stripping away at all that excess, you just don't need to be thinking about – you get this clarity. And I also, I personally found that my sleep quality improved too.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's not just thoughts. It's not just words. It's different for other people too. I mean, the thing that you, I think that comes with a a meditation practice is just a, a comfort with your own subconscious or at least a closer, getting closer to that and understanding that sometimes it's, it's not, it's not a string of words that's running through your head. It's not an image that's running through your head. It's a feeling or it's a, it's just some like almost it's below the surface. There is, there's stuff going on in your brain and over time you're able to just get a little bit closer to that. It's almost like bridging the gap between the consciousness, the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. Um, and obviously that's, uh, if you can do that, that would be really, really amazing because I think our subconscious minds are, are often in charge. Um, and that's been my experience is that, um, I, I come away from it. But like you said, uh, the mind is there to, to think, and that's what it does. And sometimes when you're sitting there trying to meditate in silence and you want your, your your brain to be empty and it's just not, it can be very frustrating. Likewise, there are times when I'm sure you're working out, James, and, and you don't really want to be at the gym on this particular day. Or you don't, you really don't want to do that final lap or that final rep. But that's often the most important time for you to be there, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I think you know, getting getting being okay with the sort of crazy chatter and noise of your mind is is probably step one. It's 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 absolutely essential to the process. Over time, if you're lucky, you're you'll you'll get less of that.
0: Yeah, I would think uh, the term "monkey mind" is perfect for mine because, especially with this, the 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 nature of this project is that's a good thing. Like my mind will go somewhere, I'll watch a documentary, something will flash up on social media and be like, that would be a good guess. And then it goes off in that direction. However, that's a good thing as long as I can shut it off. But, you know, I, I will literally be editing and hit something that takes two minutes to process and then I'll grab my phone. You know, mm-hmm. I don't need to grab my phone. <laughs> I can just sit there and, you know. So, yeah, I mean, there's, we are so overwhelmed with stimuli that I think, when you just try and sit still it is it's it's a shock initially but
1: and and it's totally by design too i mean you know these the algorithms you know the reason that instagram um will let you know what that somebody liked your post but not every time only once in a while and there's 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 a lot of psychology behind these sorts of decisions and they're tapping into very very base human instincts and um and it's a challenge for, I think, all of us and a, and a responsibility that we all have to use technology and not be used by technology. Because I'll tell you, I mean, where I live, the the first sign of stress, people start pulling out their phones. It's just, it's like de facto.
0: Yeah. I noticed on myself um, that it was a way of filling the void. So that whole being present, obviously with the mental health side, you know, if there's anything that you're, uh, trying not to to deal with trying to push down um then the you know alcohol drugs whatever or uh, are, are have their addictive qualities well cell phones are the same if you're constantly looking for reinforcement on social media that's that's a level of addiction too it's a level of of um denial almost and i think what makes uh the mindful practice very powerful in mental health is you're basically forcing your brain to deal with thoughts. And the brain is good at dealing with thoughts. It just needs to be in the right parasympathetic mode to start processing them. So I find, you know, I th- honestly think that overuse of, of social media cell phones can be put in the exact same shelf as opiates and gambling and porn and every other addiction that takes you away from real life.
1: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. And, and I mean, you have kids and I have kids. How many times have you been to a park where the kids are playing and the parents are just on their phones.
0: Yeah, and, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And, and the thing that's so amazing about kids is that you realize pretty quickly that they they change constantly, right? I mean, these 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 little creatures are going from one-year-olds to two-year-olds and everything changes about them. And so the time that you have with them is so precious. It's just, it's right in front of you. And yet people will be on their phones doing what? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't want to judge people. It may be that they're, you know, they're, maybe they're texting their doctor at something important. I have no idea. But it just does seem to be ever-present.
0: Yeah. I, the thing I tell myself is it can wait. And it's not just a driving and texting. I don't do that. But, um, you know, whatever it is, like you dealt with it just fine before there was the the cell phone. So, you know, of course, take advantage of the technology and, and check it whenever. Set yourself times. But, yeah, I mean, that, that, that incessance checking of uh notifications it is it's it's borderline lunacy really when we take a step back and look
1: people act like it's a job you know like if they don't do it they're going to get in trouble and also just think about the fun of of driving i mean I, i think a lot of this stuff because we have this sense as we get older that you know driving is a means from point a to point b and it is obviously but it's also an engineering marvel it's super fun if you really pay attention to driving and you know Roll down your windows and feel the air. I mean, it's this isn't meditation per se. It's just, as you said, gratitude. It's appreciating life and, and not trying to get past life in order to get to some perceived end goal that doesn't really exist.
0: Yeah, especially PCH. My God, that's a beautiful drive.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Malibu. The Malibu coast is very pretty. You can see why Bob Dylan lives there.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Um. So... Just uh, transitioning a bit. So what have you witnessed as far as mental health and mindful practice? Cause obviously there, there is, you know, a horrendous epidemic and people may argue stats, but to me, if we're losing, you know, double the amount of responders to suicide than we are line of duty deaths and that, that's worthy of the word epidemic in my opinion. So what are you seeing as far as the, the upside of applying mental, uh, mindful practice as far as mental health?
1: You know, that's a tough question, actually, because I don't want to I'd love to be able to give you some pat answer that makes it sound like there, you know, there's a linear relationship between mindfulness and mental health. There may be, um, but I can only really speak from my experience. And one thing I think we have to acknowledge is that this conversation, has, as I said before, has really changed in, in the world of first response. There's now uh, multiple wellness symposiums for first responders. Um, first responders are doing things like Tai Chi. There's an openness to let's try new things. Let's acknowledge that something is not working that, um, and it's not just, you know, obviously the suicides are terrible in and of themselves, but I, I've always said that they're also indicative of a larger problem. And, um, I'm sure you've seen it, people who retire and five years later, it's like, you know, it's like they're, they're a shell of the person they used to be. And I think. I think just being living a little bit more consciously um understanding that this life is precious that it's that it's moving fast it's moving faster than any of us realize and it's a gift um and I think sitting down for me sitting down on a co- on a cushion for 20 minutes in the morning as the sun comes up just pins me to myself and reminds me a little bit of that and I can hopefully hold on to a little bit of that throughout the day and if I'm able to do that consistently over time I, I believe, you can ask my wife, she probably would know better than I do, uh, that I'm probably a little bit more even keel. I'm probably a little bit less uh, prone to anger, um, less prone to stress eating, stress drinking, you know, these sorts of reactions that we have where, you know, when you experience stress, it's natural that your body wants sugar and it wants fats. And, um, and so it's, it's no wonder that our first responders often don't eat very well. Um, they're dealing with stress, and they're they're dealing with it the way that they were have evolved to deal with stress. So that's sort of a, a roundabout question um, or a roundabout answer to your question. But I I do think personally, I think that meditation is essential long term to my well being, and I and I think it, it 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 stands to reason that it's probably good for other people as well.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing that we're seeing in in fire service specifically is there such a lack of any good wellness research. So the number of, of you know, emails I get asking for, for you know, research on whatever, and I tell people, just look at the associated professions as your best answer because it's very rare you're gonna find you know, a good longitudinal study in, in firefighters, sadly. I mean, there should be, but I guess there's no money in it. Um, but look around like the people that are exercising are eating well that that you know do use a mindful practice do they are they healthier you know talk to them are they in a good mental space obviously chances are common sense of course that they're going to be um and i know again anecdotally for me absolutely when i when i am doing that regularly i you know i'm in a much better place and one thing that i think you touched on in the book as well that i've started talking about recently and this was a coach, a um, strength and conditioning coach, that actually kind of made me think about it initially, is uh, mindfulness is a great practice to put between your shift and when you get in the car to go home. Because we don't punctuate the you know, the two. And one minute you're carrying a dead baby, and then 30 minutes later you might be on the way to your own baby. you know. So not only for me was it a great way of unwinding and trying to get – some semblance of sleep at the station and, and, and obviously at home but it is sitting there whether it's actually meditating whether it's walking around you know whatever you've got in the back of the station whether it's being on a on a rower rowing very slowly with no music just letting you th- you know trying to control your thoughts that way but really putting a full stop on whatever you just did in your shift and allowing yourself to switch from that sympathetic hypervigilant state to down regulate into a dad, a husband, you know, whatever you're going to be when you walk through the door? Oh,
1: it's so essential and so difficult to do. And, you know, I told you that the reason I wrote the book was was because of being close to a couple of first responders, a, a young cop and a young firefighter specifically, and seeing the stress that they went through, um, specifically with um, dead children in both cases, and um, seeing how they reacted differently to it and seeing as well how they, nobody really had the supports that these Guy, They were both guys. So these guys needed. Um, and I don't, you know, it, it, it kind of was heartbreaking what the, the cop in fact ended up retiring very young. I mean, or quitting the job and going and doing something else that probably pays better and has, um, less sort of collateral damage on his life. Um, and that, that kind of thing really bugs me because, um, you know, you guys, the fire, the fire service, the cops, EMS, all you first responders are getting called into the, the fucked up situations that we create, we, we civilian populations create. And a lot of people, it's like outsourcing, you know, we outsource the, the messy parts of our lives. Um, and, and as a result of that, you pay a heavy, heavy price, um, vis-a-vis trauma and stress. And, uh, to the extent that that mindfulness can help you, and I believe that it can, um, I hope that my book has been something of a resource. Um, and yeah, and again, thank you for for letting me even be on your podcast and, and talk on these really important topics.
0: Well, no, and it's it's my honor. I mean, we, we, firstly, you, you connected me with so many great people we had on here before. Like I said, uh, uh, Mandar Apte and uh, uh, Greg Amundsen. Um But I mean, the, the whole point of this is to to bring solutions to people it's not a not a bitch fest even though i get a little wound up sometimes when i'm passionate about something um and you know you've brought another one to the table and and what makes your story unique is that even though you've been a part of our community for the whole time you're not actually you know on the shift which i think gives you a very different and unique perspective and another objective way of looking at how we can maybe solve some of our problems
1: well, thank you for saying that. I mean, it's—I really feel like it's an honor to work with first responders. It's—it's um, it's the best part of what I do. I, I now work for Lexipol doing policy for fire and EMS um, marketing for them, but um, you know, it really is about—it's it, it, people work, right? What what cops and firefighters and EMS do, and working with people is—it's it, very challenging. People are fascinating. They are, you know, and. and you can, you can put a label on them if you want to, but um, it's exhausting doing this kind of work. And it's, it's similar to the sorts of fatigue you see with school teachers and nurses and, and doctors and other people who get into careers where it, it, they're mission-oriented. These are people who want to help people. And unfortunately, helping people is really, really a difficult thing to do.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. It takes its toll, and I think that's something that I'm hoping we can help educate and i say it's not like i'm some expert at all i've just stumbled across all these myself and then luckily being in in the kind of strength and conditioning space my whole life as well um but you know you look at the people that that the healers of the world and and the sheepdogs of the world um later in their career you know it's very evident that it's that there's a cost to that i mean you think about how many doctors and nurses are morbidly obese you know there's a certain irony to that but you think about the shift works and the ridiculous um, residency programs they have where these men and women are having to work like 60 plus hour weeks, which I don't know if you ever heard the story of that. That came from a, a surgeon, the turn of the last century, who was basically a, a opium and cocaine addict. So he was staying up all night and then expecting his students to while well, they were not <laughs> on cocaine. And, you know, fast forward 100 years, we're still following that blueprint. So, yeah, it's it's. It's insanity at some of the things as 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 progressive as we are and we're putting people on the moon and walking around with little microcomputers in our pocket but yet the simple concept of the importance of sleep and good nutrition and you know mindful practice are the hardest sell so I'm I'm glad that your book is is adding to that list of resources people have to reprogram well,
1: I'm glad that people are open to it as well. And, and I, you know, I really think that kindness is kind of, it's really essential. Um, and I, you know, it's, it, it's being kind to yourself and being kind to others. And and that's one of the things that I think is so tough about being a first responder is that a lot of the times, especially as a police officer, people are treating you, um, like you're less than human. And, um, I know the fire service gets it too. And, a little bit of kindness to ourselves and to others goes a long way. And I think that um, mindfulness practice is sort of a, uh, it, it's a self-preservation uh, practice. It's its a returning to yourself, taking all your various pieces that have been scattered over the course of a day and coming back to who you are, making that clear distinction between that last call you were on and being home, being with your family, being at peace.
0: Yeah. i agree 100 percent there's a analogy that i've liked that i've talked about a couple of times which in the the movie the green mile marco clark duncan's character um and he's he's basically taking disease from all these people you know through the through the film um but at a cost like it's making him more and more sick and there's a scene towards the end where he says i'm i'm tired boss i'm tired of people being ugly to each other i think is what he says but that's it's, it's always been such a great parallel to me for what we do. We we deal with this trauma. We we make people's worst days better. We you know we take on the trauma. We see the pain of of the families that are left behind when someone's killed. And I think that we have to remember that if we don't offload, then that that weight eventually becomes too much. And I think that mindful practice, as well as you know, obviously firehouse table tour, counseling, all these other things. But mindful practice is a very powerful tool of emptying that bucket a little bit, getting rid of some of that that load that you're carrying so that you are, you know, like you said, good to go home and then also good for the next shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and, and I'll just tell you a funny thing about the word mindfulness is uh, it's it's a relatively recent term. Um, it's It's obviously, it has some some basis in uh, Buddhist history. It's a, a Pali word that was translated as and, and there there's that sense of it. But in the, the current use of the word is it's something that came about in the 1970s. Um and it's um it's actually been re it's been kind of invented here in the in the West and then exported again back to the East. So it's it's when we talk about mindfulness, we're really talking about a large conversation um about practices that basically broker awareness that bring about awareness in ourselves
0: brilliant that's kind of cool <laughs> it's going to boomerang back to where it originated from
1: yeah in fact the the word mindfulness it, they, there was no word for it in japanese so they they have a word that's i forget how you say it but it, it's basically a, a, a J, the japanese term for mindfulness is a transliteration meaning it sounds like the word mindfulness because Despite being a, a Zen, a largely Zen culture, they, this is a foreign concept to them.
0: Yeah, interesting. You know, that reminds me of, um, I forget who it was now, but it might have been Sebastian Junger um, talking about, you know, some of the native tribes don't even have a word for suicide because it doesn't happen because of the way, you know, they have that tribalism and that that sense of community, um, which is another huge thing that, you know, I've touched on many times is, you know, the that loneliness is definitely a, a, a strong um, stressor that contributes to, to mental ill health.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that, and, and, and there's a sense as a first responder that nobody can relate to to what you see. And and that's totally understandable because, as I said, a lot of the us civilians have the luxury of – you know, offshoring those experiences. And we don't want to talk about them. But um, having a community, having support is, is just so, so critically important. And, and I would say when it comes to meditation, if you want to meditate regularly, um, doing it with other people makes it a lot easier just because it's like a, it, there's the accountability aspect of it. And there's also just there's this weird thing that happens when you do Zazen with other people where you hear them breathe. You you hear their their digestion sometimes happening, you know, you, you feel their warmth. It's it's a really strange and beautiful experience.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. And then I guess is the uh, the accountability as well. What I found with the CrossFit gym where I coach and train, I tell people this like you just gotta walk through the door. Once once you get yourself there, you will end up doing the class. You know, and I'm sure it's the same with, with yoga and meditation. If you're with a group of people, you know, you walk in, you start chatting, then the person says, all right, you know, get to your spot. Before you know it, that you've done it. You're driving home. You're like, I feel I feel good now. You know, I, I just meditated. I just worked out. I just did my yoga class. Um, so, yeah, just, just don't worry about, oh, I don't know if I want to work out. Just say, I just want to walk through the door with the right equipment in my bag. That's it. The rest will take care of itself
1: yeah yeah and but the funny thing about zen it it is kind of funny but they the 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 tradition has taken an approach whereby you're not welcome with open arms when you go to a zen dojo you know there is a there's sort of a distancing like you have to kind of come to their terms um but it's effective long term i think You, you but i would encourage anybody who's listening to this if you're interested find out what sorts of meditation resources are available to you in your community and, and don't necessarily be afraid of them. Or, or, you know, obviously you want to, you want to choose with some skill, what might work best for you, but um, they aren't, I was scared to be honest with you. When I went into a Zen Dojo at six in the morning for the first time, there's all these old people in sweatpants and I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is not what I want to do on a Saturday morning. Um, but it's one of the best things I ever did.
0: Yeah, and you don't know to try. That's the thing. I mean, we have these, you know, pre-conceived um, ideas of what yoga looks like, of what Pilates, of what, you know, Tai Chi meditation. But, you know, you go there. Try it once, twice, three times. And if you don't like it, then you go, well, I, I tried it. And maybe that's just not the right type. Maybe you need to do one with chanting, no chanting, headspace, you know. Again, not even specific meditation, maybe hi- join a hiking group or you know, whatever it is. But but yeah, I think that the uh, the thing that we do is we already tell ourselves a story. Like, oh, I'm going to go there and it's going to suck. It's like, well, you don't know. And so many things that I've done in my life were all because I just you know, filled in that form or walked through that door and it literally changed my life.
1: Yeah, you just show up. But the other story that I told myself that got myself into a lot of trouble was, I told myself the story of, well, you meditate every day, so you are not perfect, but you are good, and maybe you are better than other people. And that is such a bullshit story. And, um,
0: <laughs> I'm the best meditator I know. <laughs> yeah. And if
1: there's anybody listening to this who thinks that people who meditate are blissful and you know at peace all the time, that's not the case. I I think that's one of the reasons I felt very comfortable writing a book on this topic. Is because I'm I'm very much a flawed work in progress, and at the same time, I'm perfect as I am, and both are true.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've heard you know very very um, enlightened beings like the Dalai Lama say the same thing. Like you know, we don't just walk around with a smile on my face. You know, if if you uh, you know walked up and slapped my child, I'm not just going to be like Namaste, my brother. I'm I'm going to probably rearrange your face. You know, and then after we'll pray. <laughs> so yeah i mean it is a definitely a, a fictional take on on that but anyway well i want to transition to some closing questions um of which we are prepped today it's a new thing of me to actually let my guests know what the closing questions are going to be um so the first one i talk about um is books let's talk about your book first though so it's mindful uh responder uh where can people find that
1: Amazon.com or
0: caliberpress.com, C-A-L-I-B-R-E press.com. Beautiful. All right. So is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be what we've discussed today or something completely different.
1: Yeah. I, so thank you for letting me, you know, mo- or think about these for a little bit. But um, there's a couple of books that I just adore. Um, one is a. it's really short. So it that's, it's, can be read in a, in a few hours. Um, it's called Michael Kohlhaas. It's by um, Heinrich von Kleist. And it was written in the 1800s. Um, but it's about, uh, it, it, it takes place in the 1500s in Germany. And it's the story of a horse trader. And it's, he basically becomes a, a terrorist <laughs> and burns down a bunch of cities and raises an army. And it's one of the weirdest, most fascinating books I've ever read. Um, and it, it's, it's based loosely on historical facts, including um, Martin Luther, um, the, the Protestant Reformation guy, um, has a pretty prominent role in it. Um, just adore that book. Brilliant. Um, yeah, it's, it, if, you like, if, you, if you like human politicking and trying to get to the, the root of what makes people tick, um, Michael Kohlhaas is so obsessed with this concept of justice that he basically destroys his world.
0: Interesting. I've never heard that one uh, recommended before, so I'm gonna have to put that on my list. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. What about a movie?
1: Oh man, I always like Chinatown with uh, Jack Nicholson and um, uh, Sam Houston. Uh, just you know, it's a story of uh, of water and greed and the the birth of Los Angeles. And again, sort of, I guess I'm seeing a theme here. I like these, uh, these sort of historical epics. that, And then Jack Nicholson is, is brilliant in it. Faye Dunaway is brilliant in it. Um,
0: just love that movie. Brilliant. Yeah, great film. Uh, what about a documentary?
1: Ooh, documentary. I, I love uh, Werner Herzog's work. Um, I saw one recently on Nat Geo that I, I really, really appreciated. It was um, I'm Married to a Marine Biologist. So, and we live near the ocean and we, we do a lot of that ocean stuff. Um, but it was looking at the, um, the sea of Cortez and the illegal gill nets that they're using to catch, uh, tatuaba fish. And they're actually catching a lot of these, um, vaquita porpoises. And it was Nat Geo, um, in conjunction with, I think, sea shepherd looking at, um, how the cartels are involved and how we might be losing, um, a marine mammal that is very rare and very precious and sort of the implications of it
0: yeah that's interesting because i I remember hearing the the kind of story of the history of the somali pirates and basically that was overfishing their wars to the point where they weren't able to catch enough anymore which then drove them into poverty and then you know, pushed a lot of them towards the crime side so i don't think people realize not just the environmental effect but the uh the economic effect and 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 the ability to to, to feed their own people in some areas
1: yeah and, and it you know the ocean is is such a good harbinger and indicator of how we're doing if you if you look at places like haiti where they have a lot of deforestation um they have a lot more sediment on the reef Ecosystems, so the reef, reef ecosystems don't produce abu- the abundance of fish that they need to support their people, and then you you add overfishing on top of that, and you end up getting um just terrible, terrible disasters that show you that our uh, our environment and ourselves
0: are are very intricately entwined. Absolutely. All right. Well, the next guest, uh, excuse me, the next question, um, you, like I said, have provided me with some great guests already. But is there anyone new that you've come across that you'd recommend to come on the show as a guest?
1: Yeah. Um, have you ever heard of Shannon McQuaid?
0: No, I have not.
1: She does yoga um, for, for firefighters specifically. But, um, yeah, she's great. Um, she's, she's very busy. She teaches all over California. And, um, she, she comes to yoga from a firefighter's perspective. So it's, it's very much, um, applicable and, and directly relevant to what you would do on the fire ground.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. I ha- I've had a few people that, that do teach yoga to first responders. Um, but again, I mean, we've got 50 States, you know, and these are people that are doing incredible things, but yeah, I would love to, to connect with her.
1: The, the other person, I, I don't know if he's. I mean, he's very well known. His name's Gordon Graham, and he's the co-founder of, of the company that I work for, Lexapol. And um, Gordon is, I, I think he's a national treasure um, in terms of, you know, it, he's, he's revered in the fire service for the near-miss reporting systems that he was instrumental in creating. Um, if you think about risk, if you think about um, things like sleep, these sort of systemic issues that we have in firehouses... He's one of the top thinkers out there in my opinion.
0: Oh, well, brilliant. Yeah. might be a very different perspective then.
1: Yeah. I, I feel honored to work with him.
0: Excellent. Well, yeah. Well, thank you for both those. They sound like great potential guests if we can, uh, if we can make it work. Um, okay. So then the next question, we obviously, we talked a lot about mindful practice and meditation. Is there anything else that you do to decompress?
1: Um, yeah, I, I love surfing. I just adore surfing. And, um, And you know what, it's, I don't want to get too corny here at the end, but I think that with, with a mindfulness practice, there, there are things that I enjoy that I used to think of as chores. Like I really, really love like doing dishes (laughs) once in a while, or, or, you know, those sorts of mundane digging a hole, um, those sorts of tasks that I used to want to just get past. I've, I've come to see them as like essential
0: and great opportunities to to just kind of be. See, that is very interesting that you said that because I've always almost been in awe of people that can do very mundane professions and, you know, many of whom seem completely content. Um, I remember working in a pizza factory years ago when I was young after being told I could never be a firefighter. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was literally for a day like working for a temp agency. And there was a guy that just worked on the corner of this machine where the dough came out. And, and there was almost like a tablecloth trick where to, to change from one conveyor belt to the other, it would, it would pull itself out and occasionally it would get stuck. And this guy would just basically take the dough, you know, put it back in a bucket, and that was it. And he just washed. But I'd never really thought about that. But maybe you know one of the elements of, of men and women like that is that they're able to be present the whole time. Whereas, you know, the, the, probably everyone listening to this who wants a chaotic life like we do in the, in the first responder community are kind of the other side of that spectrum. I think you're right. And
1: also, it, yeah, I mean, doing something like digging a hole, um, there's real skill to it. I mean, and, and I think I didn't see that, you know, because I wanted to just get through that task. The other thing I think is that when you look at digging a hole or pulling out pizza dough or whatever it may be. As something that you got to just get through. This sucks. I don't want to be here. That changes the whole color of everything that you're doing. Um, so I think adopting just a sense of gratitude that, hey, man, like, yeah, I have to make pizza, but at least, you know, I'm living and uh, there's probably more to pizza than uh, any of us really realizes. And maybe the guy was learning every night that he was there. Maybe he was just enjoying life. Who knows? But um, I think those simple pleasures are, are pretty stunning.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of that phrase. Is it before enlightenment, uh, carry wood? Sorry, carry water, chop wood. After enlightenment, carry water, chop wood. And it's it's true. I I, I love chopping wood. It's, I don't know what it is about that, but on a cold day, you know, I mean, it, most people see it as a chore, but there's something very very cathartic about just destroying a tree with an axe.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it, man! Especially when you start getting good at like figuring out where the where the grain patterns are and if i hit it here it's gonna break here and you know you you can get highly highly involved intellectually in making kindling and it's a weird thing to discover
0: yes and then when you burn it you're like yeah i i I cut this myself i'm a manly man (laughs) (laughs) well we all knew you were a manly man (laughs) All right, so then for everyone that uh, you know is listening, if they want to reach out to you, how do they find you on social media and the internet? Oh, man.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not real good at that. Um, but I'm on it all day, so I should get better. Um, Crawfordcoats at gmail.com. You can send me an email. Um, I have an Instagram account. It's mostly pictures of bugs and my dogs. So if you like bugs and dogs, uh you might be able to find me on Instagram. I don't know how you do that, <laughs> <laughs> but and I would like to say before we get off, I'd like to just say thank you to Ellen Kirschman if she's listening for um, for introducing us because, like I said, it's been a real fruitful relationship for me, and uh, and she's just such a a treasure.
0: Yeah, no, she's amazing. In fact, I'm just finishing editing today's episode that's going out today. with broke Carrasco's a, a wildland firefighter. And uh when I asked the so guest suggestions, Ellen was the one that she she mentioned. So it's funny how all these these circles intersect.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, there and sorry to prolong this, but there is on the wildland firefighting side, there's been interest in mindfulness for a long time.
0: Yeah, well I know they're seeing some pretty horrendous mental health issues as well. And I think um I heard someone talking about it the other day in one of the interviews. But they attribute it to that that lack of tribe, like you know, because they're not you know at a station like consistently with those guys. They're being deployed all over the place. Maybe not even the same crews. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a need for that. I can see that 100. percent
1: Oh, I used to play soccer with a bunch of smoke jumpers and and hot shot guys, and I will tell you, they are the most fit people though. I, it is unbelievable. I mean, these are guys that would play two soccer games back to back and then go to a CrossFit gym afterward.
0: Yeah yeah I mean what they do I mean the the the, the wildland in general when they're cutting lines if anyone's never cut line in the California summer I mean we just did like training for Anaheim and I was like how the hell do these guys do this for a whole season yeah so, so yeah, yeah amazing it's a,
1: it's a weird it's a weird lifestyle too because they're usually very very busy for three to five months
0: and then like you say they're some of them are living in their cars for the rest of the year mm-hmm. yeah exactly and that's the problem you know it's the same with with, uh, you know, I'm sure with the, the fishermen and some of these other, you know, groups, you're with this, this cohesive uh, crew for a while and then, and then you're not. So you're taken from that tribe. So there's, there's no, no doubt in my mind that tribalism is another giant piece of the puzzle that most of us are missing. Yeah,
1: yeah, we are. And yet we all have a, a role to pay, play in making our own tribes. You know, I think sometimes we discount just how much impact we can have on other people. Organizing a group to go for a hike together. Um, asking some folks if they'd like to come over for dinner or whatever. You know, you, we all have the the uh, opportunity and the responsibility to reach out to people around us and put those tribes together.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's funny, the, the dinner party was definitely yeah, much more of a thing, not even a formal one, just, just having people over for dinner. Um, and that's something I, my wife and I are trying to do more now. You know, it's just... It doesn't have to be anything fancy, but just invite another couple or two friends or whatever it is and just have a conversation over some food. And, you know, it's it's amazing how that in itself is, is so nurturing.
1: Yeah. You know, I had a friend who was in the Peace Corps in some um, pretty rough parts of the world. And he told me that the best advice he ever got was to become friends with your neighbors <laughs> wherever you are. Because, you know, he said, like, once you get to know your neighbors, he says, you don't have to be friendly, friendly, but just look them in the eye, shake their hand. And then if somebody steals your bicycle, they're going to they're going to have your your back. Um, It doesn't take much.
0: No, no. Actually, where I've talked about this a few times where I live now is a a great community in, in Ocala. Um, and there's four subdivisions around this giant lake that has all these recreational facilities. And, and it's the community that people talk about in the good old days. You know, the kids are out till the light, the street lights come on and the neighbors talk to each other and watch out for each other's houses when, when they're on vacation. And, you know, that it's, it's, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's just going back to how people used to be. And I think if we can get back to that, you know, as a mindset in a community, then, then you'd see a, you know, a huge improvement in overall well-being i agree 100 percent. right well i just want to say thank you so much it's been a great conversation um you know we didn't know where it was going to go and i think it's been a, a fun discussion um and I, I just appreciate you taking the time and and you know also doing the book thank you for that as well because it's a great um contribution to our profession
1: well, thanks a lot for saying that. Thanks for having me on the show. And, and I hope that your listeners get something out of this. Um, and, and like I said, CrawfordCoats at gmail.com. If you have a question, send me an email. I will I will reply to you.